0: We uh, continue on in our worship uh, by hearing God's word, and uh, we've been in a series on the kingdom of God and Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And we have, after this Sunday one sermon on this series. And so our text this morning comes from uh, Luke chapter 20 verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to look on Jesus at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, the parable of the tenants, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful? for us to give tribute to Caesar or not. But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. The word of the Lord. Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing uh, bone and marrow and soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Father, we pray this morning that you would wield your word as living and active in our hearts, and uh, like a a surgeon, (laughs) uh, like a heart surgeon that is able to make fine cuts and clear distinctions, may you do... uh, surgery on us by your word and teach us and instruct us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we had an election, a national election this past week. If Jesus were here, how do you think he would have voted? Would he would he have would he have voted Republican? Would he have voted Democratic? Would he have split his ticket? Or would he have, you know, a write-in? I heard it was an option. Or would he have not voted at all? How do you think he would have voted? Um, Jesus was asked a very similar kind of question in his own day. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you show no partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This, of course, is a highly charged political question, and his opponents know this, and they're trying to entrap him. See, if Jesus... Uh, they're, trying to, they're basically trying to out him politically. Um, if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, then he would be viewed as politically compromised by the people um, and basically in league uh, with a pagan Roman Empire. If Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax then he actually uh, endangers himself with the Roman authorities and the governing authorities as being seditious and could actually be arrested. So he's kind of in a, you know, trying to be forced into a really uh, lose-lose situation here. But of course, Jesus refuses to answer the question on the terms in which he would address. He asks for a denarius, and he says, whose face and whose inscription is on the coin? Well, Caesar's, of course, and tellingly, he doesn't have a coin, but his opponents do. And he says, well then, give to Caesar, that which is Caesar, and give to God, that which is God. Now this is kind of one of those mic drop moments in the (laughs) ministry of Jesus, where everybody thinks they have him cornered, and there's like no way he can get out, and then all of a sudden, he just turns the tables on you, and uh, he outwits you with his wisdom, and you're just silent. And even his enemies are like amazed, right? (laughs) I'm sure they're mad, but they're also amazed, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. This is the most direct teaching of Jesus on a Christian's political responsibilities in the world. It is a very brief statement, but in this statement is contained a whole theology, a political theology of the kingdom of God. And so this morning I want to explore with you what this statement means and how it might apply in our own context What does faithful Christian political engagement look like in the light of God's kingdom? That's really the theme this morning. How does the kingdom of God interact with the politics of this world? Now these are very big questions, and in order to answer these questions, you need more than just this text. Nevertheless, Jesus gives us some very important principles that I think we need to be mindful of and incorporate into our own thinking and action when it comes to our own politics today. So the first thing is this, the first principle, if you will, that we learn from this story is that we, we must make a distinction in our lives between two political realms. Two kingdoms, if you will. Uh, kingdoms of this world, or the politics of a nation, and the kingdom of God. All Christians, all Christians have a dual political citizenship. Dual political citizenship. On the one hand, we're citizens of a specific nation, right? America, most of us, or Canada, China, Mexico, Ukraine, Germany. We can be citizens of these different countries. But on the other hand, as followers of Jesus, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. The nation is an earthly political realm, but the kingdom of God is also a political realm. And we are citizens of both at the same time. And so the issue of Christian political engagement really comes down to um, how we understand the relationship of these dual citizenships between two different kingdoms, two different political realms. Which one has priority of the other one? Uh, What duties and obligations do we have to the nation? What duties and obligations do we have to the kingdom of God? Can these, do these overlap? Do they mix together? And what happens when there's tension between them and conflict? Now, again, these are really big questions, and we're not going to be able to answer them all. But I really want you to see what Jesus' first move here is, and it's very important. He refuses to fuse the kingdoms together. He refuses to bring the kingdoms of the nations and the kingdom of God together in a singular identity. Being You can't collapse them together. Being a citizen of God's kingdom is not the same thing as being a citizen of the United States. Take the most Christian nation in all of history. Who knows what it is? I'm not making any particular points here. Even being a citizen of that nation, you would still have to make a distinction between being a citizen of the kingdom of God and a citizen of of, uh, that nation. We must distinguish between our identity as Christian and our identity as American. And we ought to expect there to be a tension there. We should expect that there is a tension between these identities. So being a faithful Christian does not necessarily make you a good American. And being a good patriotic American does not necessarily make you a faithful Christian. They're not incompatible, but don't fuse them together into one identity. See, when Jesus is asked about paying taxes to Caesar, the political background is one that, for generations, has been filled with revolutionary tension. You had the Maccabee Revolutions, and just prior, 30 years prior to when Jesus is teaching here, there was a, a man named Judas the Galilean who led an armed revolt against this poll tax of Caesar. Caesar. The tax of Caesar was a symbol of Israel's political servitude to a pagan empire. They did not have political independence. They were allowed to live in the land, they were allowed to to worship freely, but they were a colony. They were a colony of a pagan empire. And the visible reality of that servitude was always present in this tax and in this coin. The denarius was Caesar's coin. He printed it. It came from his coffers. And he wanted people to pay this tax. And it was a symbol of their political compromise. And faithful Jews wouldn't even touch the coin. You know, those who are really pure, they didn't even want to touch this coin. So all the people are just convinced, they know what Jesus is thinking on this, that he's really a revolutionary. He says, "Don't don't pay that tax. But Jesus makes this move that no one really sees coming. When he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and render unto things the things that are God, what he does is he opens up this new and unimagined political space for God's people to live and exist. It is in this new space, it is possible to be faithful citizens of the kingdom of God, even in less than ideal political circumstances, or even downright hostile circumstances. Again, this is unimaginable for a first century Jew. Christian identity is not hinged to national identity. Thriving in the kingdom of God doesn't require having just the right political leaders. And our Christian identity here today, as Americans, does not depend on America being a Christian country. That's not to say that we should wish it to be hostile or we should wish it to become secularized. That's not my point. But the integrity of Christian identity should not be made to depend upon one's national identity, whether that's Russian or American or Ukrainian or Canadian, whatever it is, Roman. The church has managed to grow and thrive throughout history in the most hostile environments, even to this very day. Christian history is a history of martyrs. It's a history of martyrdom. That's what the word martyr means. It means to be a witness. And in the third century, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, actually gave expression to this. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Jesus insists on a distinction here between two different citizenships. And the reason is, is the kingdom of God does not come about by the power and authority of the earthly city of the earthly nation. That's the first point. We have dual citizenship. And the second point follows on it. The second principle that we learn from this passage is that all issues related to earthly politics, such as the election that happened on Tuesday, are matters of secondary importance in your life. They are not matters of primary importance. They are not ultimate. They are penultimate, that word penultimate. It's actually a really helpful word to know. It means not ultimate. (laughs) The second thing below ultimate, all earthly politics, all elections are penultimate. They are not ultimate. When Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, what he does is he recognizes there is a limit. There is a limit on what Caesar can ask of you and demand of you. Now, this is, of course, not how Caesar saw things. Um, The whole point of the poll tax was not necessarily to generate revenue and income, it was actually symbolic. You know, Caesar saw himself as divine. And on the denarius, which was Caesar's coin, uh, was an image of Tiberius Caesar, who was a Caesar at the time, and with the inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, son. I mean, the the, the Jews thought of this coin is basically pure idolatry, right? (laughs) Caesar viewed himself as divine, and that all his subject owed to him ultimate loyalty, and the tax was a symbol of that. And so Jesus asked, "Whose image or icon is the word in the Greek in inscriptions on the coin?" And the answer is, "Whose image is on the coin? It's a man. (laughs) It's a man. It's not a god." And when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is his and give to God what is his, he's not so subtly saying, demoting Caesar from his throne of ultimate allegiance. He's demythologizing Caesar. He's saying, listen, he is, he's a man. He's not a God. He's made in the image of God, just like you. And his coin, it bears his image and he made it. So just give it back to him. But your ultimate allegiance, your worship, belongs to God and God alone. That's the highest priority of your life. Now Jesus, what he does here is he sets a limit on what government and politics of a nation can demand of its subjects in terms of their ultimate allegiances. National politics, friends, are not of ultimate significance for the Christian. They are penultimate. And that's not to say they're not important or that they don't impact our lives, or that we shouldn't care. But they are not ultimate. They do not advance the kingdom of God. They do not control your your eternal destiny. They cannot threaten your citizenship in the kingdom of God, no matter what happens. However bad, the ruler or the emperor. Now, every election, it seems, in the past decade, that I can remember, I hear something like, this is the most important election of our lifetime. The future of democracy depends upon it. This is the most important election of our generation. I hear that every time. (laughs) And my instinct is like hogwash, that's not true. And again, it's not to say there's not really important elections. The reality is that electoral politics in America has taken on a kind of radicalism and fervor of that of religion. Every election seems to be cast as a contest for the soul of America. The nation's salvation or damnation depends upon who gets an office. And I see many, many Christians on the, on the political right and the political left getting swept up into this political religion. And so I, I just want to give you a couple signs or marks. Because, again, we're not always, we can't always see ourselves as guilty of doing this. But let me give you two things to think about. It will be signs that religion, that politics is your religion. The first one is this. One of the signs that politics has become our religion is when we view everything through a political lens. Everything's political. Everything's about power. Everything's about tribal identity. Whose identity is represented, whose identity is not represented, whose identity is being uh, a marginalized, not ro- recognized. And increasingly in American life, there are less and less spaces in which the presence of the political is not looming over us i mean there's almost no place you can you can turn or be or inhabit that doesn't have this sort of in the background all these debates and and conflicts over identity and politics you know in businesses and social media and restaurants universities school boards my goodness a school board one of the most <laughs> fractious things in america today Sports, neighborhood associations, even the churches. Sadly, the churches, as much as any, are being divided by um, political tribes and lines. And people in America are realigning themselves according to different political and tribal identities. And um, it's even invaded um, family. into our family and our personal relationships. And I've heard so many stories in the past five years of people cutting off relationships and close friends over political views. Friends. (laughs) If you have ended a friendship or a relationship over a political, differing political views, or if you, because you're so political, have alienated a lot of people in your life Your politics has become your religion. You're giving Caesar more than his coin. You're giving him your heart. (laughs) And I think Christians, they need to resist the politicization of all of life. And we must seek to preserve partisan free spaces. I think that's one of the great gifts the church can offer the polis today, one of our great civic acts of duty is that we can insist, especially in the context of the church, but also in other places of our lives, that that we refuse to let them become utterly politicized. Because that's what's happening in all the spaces of our nation, for very complex reasons that I can't get into. What is most important in your life does not depend upon American electoral politics. And if you think it does, you have wrong priorities. Okay, so that's the first thing. Everything's become political. The second sign, and it follows from it, is this. The second sign that politics has become religion in our life is when politics is always an issue of black and white. It's all or nothing. It's this or that. It's either or. It's salvation or damnation. It's wickedness or it's righteousness. It's red state or blue state. It's conservative or liberal. It's pay the tax, don't pay the tax. Right? See, the more religious our politics become, the more dogmatic and rigid our thinking becomes. If the very soul of America rides on this election, then we don't have a lot of room for nuance and complexity and compromise. That's the devil's work, right? That gray zone, that's the devil's work, trying to distract us and confuse us. But Jesus resists the all-or-nothing thinking about politics the issue of paying taxes to Caesar was viewed as a pretty straightforward black and white issue. You either pay the tax or you don't pay the tax. Either you're for Rome or you're against Rome. That's how it was, came to him. And so Jesus' his response is actually very complex and even a bit ambiguous. His response um, on the one hand says, we'll pay the tax. Pay the tax. But on the other hand says, know that as you pay the tax, you're not... You're not committing some act of idolatry. You're not like giving, you know, showing a sign that this this king is divine. It's just a man. It's just a coin. And many people would have seen this as as a kind of pure thinking, would have said, this is compromise. But Jesus by no means can be accused of, of compromise. He resists the politics of simplification. Penultimate realities of politics, of secondary matters are always complicated and difficult, and require compromise. They are not matters of divine revelation. They require prudence, discernment, discussion, conversation, because they're all part of forms of government and power structures that are always changing and passing away. They're not permanent, they're not dogmatic, they're not from heaven. So we should resist the politics of of black and white, of all or nothing, of just like either I'm all Republican or I'm all Democrat or I'm all in on this agenda or on that agenda. Now, while I have been arguing that politics is a matter of secondary importance in our lives, I'm not saying that it's not important, that it has no importance. Jesus is, is not um, advocating for a position of political quietism. Quietism is a view uh, of non-engagement, right? That we withdraw into the desert. And there were groups that did this during this time, and we, just, we don't have anything to do with it, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not, he's not advocating for passivity or non-engagement. He's not calling us to an apolitical lifestyle. Caesar doesn't have ultimate claim on our life, but he does have some claims. He does have some claims. And we, as American citizens, we have certain civic duties and obligations um, to the nation. Things like paying our taxes, serving on a jury, various acts of public service, and in some cases, military service. These are good things. We should perform with a sense of duty, even in some cases, a sense of pride, but understanding that our service to the nation as a good is for the common good of the nation, not necessarily the kingdom of God. It's possible to do these things as elected officials in the military in various forms and bear witness to the kingdom of God, but again, let's not say that we're working for the kingdom of God here. These are different things. And that brings me to my last point, the last principle here. Faithful citizens of the kingdom of God make the best citizens of the earthly city. Faithful citizens of the kingdom of God make the best citizens of the earthly nation. This is uh, really an argument that St. Augustine makes in his book, The City of God, which he wrote in the 5th century, right after the fall of Rome. And in that book, Augustine is responding to criticisms from Roman intellectuals and leaders that, the reason that Rome fell was because of the Christians. They weakened. They weakened the nation. They, wo- they weakened the empire. They were the cause of its downfall. And Augustine, he counters this argument. And he says, actually, it's not the Christians that were the reason the nation, the empire fell. Quite the opposite. It was the idolatrous nature of Rome and her lust for power and domination that was her downfall. He used this word I love, libido dominandi, Lust for domination. That's what brought Rome down. Her libido dominandi. The Christians, on the other hand, are the best kind of citizens. Those, they are citizens of a heavenly city. And they make the best citizens of the the city of man. Why? Because they have the right priorities. They are not motivated by the lust for power. The libido dominandi. Rather, they're motivated by... Love. Caritas, that's Augustine's word. Love. Love of God, love of neighbor. They haven't made the nation into an idol of their tribal identity and future. Their hope is not in the earthly city as their ultimate destination. It is in the city of God, it is in the heavenly city, it is in the kingdom of God. So they understand the limits of earthly politics of the nation. And as they make their pilgrimage, in the kingdom of God, to the heavenly city, they're able to be spread throughout all the earthly nations and all the earthly cities as salt and light. And this allows them to bear witness even when bearing witness to that true righteousness involves great suffering and even death. Because at the end of the day, their ultimate hope is not in the state and the nation. It's in the kingdom. It's in the heavenly city. It's in God. Jesus, uh, Jesus was... Jesus was not an, un, or a, a, an apolitical Messiah. Jesus was not an apolitical Messiah. The kingdom of God isn't merely some kind of spiritual reality that, that peaceably exists alongside all the earthly kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God will always shake and rattle the nations. It will always shake and rattle all the earthly cities. Why? Because it bears witness to true righteousness and a true king. The presence of the people of God and the kingdom of God in any earthly nation will always reveal the the idolatry, the libido dominandi of those nations, and they will be viewed as a political threat. Jesus was a real political threat to the political rulers of his time, the religious rulers and the imperial rulers, and this is why he was executed. His death is a political death. Everything in his ministry points to this revolutionary political direction. Just prior to our story, Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? He's riding on a donkey, and everybody is hailing him, King of the Jews, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then he goes into the temple, and he cleanses the temple. He's turning over tables. He's saying, you know, out with the money changers. Everybody recognizes he has great power and authority. Everyone is certain that he's going to bring the kingdom He's going to vanquish the Romans. He's a long-awaited Messiah that will liberate God's people from political tyranny and bondage. And they're correct. He's going to bring the kingdom. He's going to bring revolution, but in a way that nobody could understand or imagine. When Jesus' opponents ask about Caesar's tax, they're trying to figure out a way in which to put him on a political map. They're trying to find a way to locate him. And it's the same with the question, who would Jesus vote for? Is he a Republican or Democrat? It's us trying to put him on a map. Are you liberal, Jesus, or conservative? Are you Republican? Are you Democrat? Are you, are you a centrist an extremist? Are you a globalist or a nationalist? Are you pro-Rome or pro-revolution? Where are you, Jesus? But this question assumes that Jesus' power and authority must happen and be exercised within the same spectrum of political options that make up the political configurations of our world. It is to assume that when it comes to the kingdom of God, that it will come about by the same kinds of means and exercise of powers that other kingdoms come about. But Jesus cannot be fit into any political map or spectrum. Not in the first century, not in the 21st century, as the son of man he is above. He is above all political maps. He transcends them all. He's not vying for power as, you know, the nations do, as politicians do. His authority doesn't depend upon, you know, high polling. It doesn't depend upon the approval of the masses. It doesn't need a Caesar or a president to support and throw its weight behind him. Because the origin of his power comes from outside of this world. And it's ultimately not dependent on the configurations of power in this world for its effective exercise. The kingdom of God redraws political maps, but it cannot be fit on a political map. It redraws maps, and it's been doing this for all of human history, but it cannot be put on a political map. Up until the very end of Jesus' life, This was very difficult for even his closest disciples to grasp. When Jesus is about to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Peter, his apostle, he pulls out his sword, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus rebukes him. Jesus rebukes him. He says, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, do you think I'm lacking in military power? I could snap my fingers and I would have legions and armies of angels at my side. That's not what my kingdom is about. That's not how my kingdom operates. When Jesus is brought before uh, Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate is, is genuinely confused and perplexed. Here's a man that everybody is saying is the Messiah, the king. And yet the Jews are putting their king to death. And so Pilate asks him, well, are you the king? He's, I mean, he's like, if you're the king, why are they trying to kill you? And Jesus' response is this, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom where of this world. I have been fighting that I might be, not be delivered over to Jew, the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world my kingdom doesn't fit on their political map it doesn't fit on your political map and yet it threatens all your maps you can be sure it's a real kingdom and it comes with real power and authority in the lives of people to liberate them and to free them from their servitude but it doesn't come through coercive force and violence it doesn't come through torture or threats of Threats or the exercise of soft power or cultural influence, it comes through enemy love, it comes through the forgiveness of sins, it comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how my kingdom comes. The problem of political religion is that it thinks that our greatest problem is external, that the greatest problems in our life are actually outside of us, that our greatest enemies are really political enemies. And that if we could just get regime change, we'd get salvation. And Jesus says, this is is false. The greatest political threat in your life, do you know what that is, friends? All of you? It's your heart. The greatest political threat in your life is your own heart. Pilate will, at the insistence of the Jews, somewhat reluctantly, sentence Jesus to death. And he will be executed on a cross, and this will appear to everybody, everybody, as complete defeat and failure of Jesus the Messiah and his message of the kingdom of God. (laughs) But we know that, in fact, it is quite the opposite. It is not the end. It is the beginning. It is the beginning. Jesus' crucifixion is the political foundation upon which the kingdom of God is built. Jesus' crucifixion is the political foundation upon which the kingdom of God is built, and it remains so today. Dear friends, the political power, the greatest political power in the whole world is the cross of Christ. Think about that. (laughs) The cross of Christ is the most powerful thing in all the world. It is the key to our liberation our spiritual liberation, and our political liberation. For on the cross, Jesus battled against our greatest enemies. He battled against our servitude to the forces of darkness. He battled against the curse of sin that weighs us down. He battled against death itself that will claim all of us in the end. And by all appearances, he lost. (laughs) By all appearances, Jesus lost. But we know this isn't true. We know this isn't true. He didn't lose. What happened is what we confess in the creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is our political creed. This is our political reality. Amen. Father, we ask that you give us an imagination for your kingdom in our lives, that you teach us what it means to be faithful citizens of of the heavenly city, of the kingdom of God, and that that would re all of our priorities and our desires, and that we would, um, even in dark times, even in difficult political times, which indeed ours are, we would have hope, we would have joy, we'd have confidence that you are the Lord and that as the Lord, you will return someday to judge the living and the dead. Amen. If you would please stand.